welcome to episode 175 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 25th of April 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. How's it going? Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. I nearly didn't know it was April there, the way things are going. That's why I stumbled on that one. Anyway, let's get on with our discoveries then. I did mine last time, so Will, what's yours? Two-year convert. Two-year convert. Yeah, so a little while ago, there was a company called Insteon, and you might have talked about these people recently. Uh, they sold home automation equipment, and they've been going for a long, long time, like more than 10 years, I think. And originally, they did some X10 hardware, and then later on, they did this sort of uh, hybrid um, radio and mains power uh, network layer connection stuff. And I thought that their stuff was was pretty decent, pretty well regarded. Uh, and then some point in the last week or so, they just went away. And now most of your gear is is kind of useless, or at least it won't connect to the cloud. And there's another company called Tuya, who I think are somehow related to Xiaomi, the big Chinese company, also sell a whole load of home automation equipment from light bulbs to radiator valves to temperature sensors to PIR sensors to doorbells to you name it, they do it. Oh, robot hoovers as well. And all of this stuff connects through their cloud service. They have got an API, and it's a relatively well-documented API, and you can get a free developer account, and you can control your devices from your own applications. But nevertheless, it is still a closed shop. And one day, if their cloud service goes away, then you're kind of screwed. But most of these devices run on an ESP8266, which I'm sure most of you will know is a ubiquitous Wi-Fi microcontroller. And they run a, a sort of standard firmware image. And people have been working on reverse engineering the firmware update mechanism. As Tuya Convert will let you power on one of these devices. Uh, and they support a whole range of things. But the things I use it for mostly are main sockets, like you know, plug it in, plug something into it, and then control it from the web. And it will report power usage over MQTT while you're doing it. You can boot this thing up. You can put it into sort of pairing mode. You can run this uh, two-year convert on your desktop, which will discover the device and replace it with something like Tasmota, which is uh, an open source equivalent, which is completely open, uh, open API and no dependence on cloud services. And so if you happen to have one of the devices which is old enough and hasn't had a firmware update too recently because they tried to stop people doing this, then you can turn this thing on, hold down the, the pairing button or, or whatever it is, the button that's on this thing, run this little script and reflash it and remove all dependency on cloud services. And it works really well. Tasmota is, is a great solution for people who want to get rid of uh, cloud services. You can talk to it over MQTT. You can talk to it over the web. And it supports all the features. And it's just a really nice solution to removing cloud dependencies from your stuff. And it ties into Home Assistant nicely, I hear. It does. Uh, and it ties into Node-RED quite nicely as well. Uh, there's a whole load of sort of uh, abstraction layers that it hooks into. But yes, um, Home Assistant's the big one. And it works really nicely there. That sounds really good. I'm amazed there isn't a kind of a, a standard open source stack for this stuff or even crowdfunding campaigns for creating our own things that we can host. Um, at least those devices have been saved from going in the bin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I think Tasmota's probably about as standard as you're going to get. Um, it is ubiquitous. I've tried a few different versions, a few different um, ESP8266 based firmwares. I've tried my own, but Tasmota covers most bases. It supports all of the variety of devices and integrates really well. So if you are thinking of investing time and energy in an alternative firmware for an ESP8266 based device, then I would certainly recommend Tasmota. All right, Phelim, what's Enterer? Enterer by Eric Radman is a very cool utility, which if you're on the BSD land, use KQ or iNotify in Linux land for watching a directory or a set of files or a file itself for any changes and I have sat with an S-Trace looking at a file for the entire afternoon and it has not made any output whatsoever until I catted changes into the directory and it actually then spat to life. So it's a fantastic way to monitor a file, set of files or a directory for any changes that take place and then do something with it. So I was just echoing out a command saying, oh, it's changed. But uh, you could be doing anything from running a new make on this set of source files or whatever, or God knows what, or restarting a process, depending on whether a directory of like web stuff has changed for a static site. Uh, very cool. And uh, using iNotify, there's no polling, constantly checking every minute or whatever. So very good. Event notify test runner. Enterer. Oh, well, that, that makes it. I just thought it was one of those like, you know, was it late 2000s sort of like cut out all the vowels? Consonants, whatever the hell it is. I can't remember. Yeah, like flicker. I need to study my countdown more. That is a great. I've I've used that for ages as well for building previews of Markdown files. Oh, you kept it to yourself very well then. <laughs> I think it might be a discovery of the fortnight from a long time ago. How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago in a podcast far, far away. <laughs> Maybe it came from the depths of my knowledge, but I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it did. Yeah, <laughs> What's HW Probe then? Oh, this is quite cool. So. I don't know if people remember this. Back in the, in the sort of early 2000s, when the land of Linux laptops and Linux hardware was a terrible place, the Linux hardware sort of wiki that you used to follow to see what would work if you were buying your precious wind modems, etc., or motherboards that didn't quite work properly because the, the network chip was invalid for Linux. And yeah, this is a great way to contribute without doing too much work by sending a probe of your machine up to the site and then letting them know how well things work. And that way, people can build a map of various motherboards, chipsets, graphics cards, whatever, that work quite well. And I've done this, and I did it again by mistake with a different ID, so I apologize to the project. Uh, there's two of me in there, but uh, it's quite easy to do, and uh, it's it's quite a good way to upload some stuff. And it looks like they're pretty agnostic when it comes to packaging. There's an app image, a Docker image, yeah. Snap, Flatpak. Yeah, I think I even installed the actual hardware probe utility. I think it was part of apt repo in uh, Ubuntu, I think, to be honest. So yeah, on you go. And they've got live images as well. Yeah. Graham, yours is parallel disk usage. On my main desktop PC, I've never invested in a huge SSD. I've got like about six smaller ones because the the big ones are just too expensive. So I'm always running out of space. So I'm always running tools to find out which are the biggest files and where they live so that I can delete them or at least move them to another bigger drive or some spinning rust. 
the tool I really like in Plasma is called File Light, oh. um, which has got that beautiful kind of donut view of does, what yeah. directories use are using the most space, and it's really easy to navigate and delete and open finders from there. Um, but on the command line, I've tried a few. Um, Norton Commander has a mode for doing this, but this parallel disk usage or PDU on the command line is the best I've found because the parallel part means that it spawns off all of it, forks all of these processes. Um, and reads a huge amount of data, especially on an SSD, um, really quickly. It, it splits the view into a tree view on the left, like tree on the command line. And on the right, you get these kind of histograms or charts of how much space each of those files and directories is using. And you can quickly jump between them and delete the ones you want to and, and you know, go through temp or... Or whatever, or var, or whatever you suspect might be, um, or slash snap, whatever you suspect might be using all the space. And I see it's written in Rust, which is the latest of my book purchases that mm. will sit on my desk forever. <laughs> O'Reilly programming Rust. I have a terrible problem with buying books I don't read. And then, yeah, I've got another find, um, a quick one. I'm sorry, Phelan, but it's a client for the evil premium Spotify. Boo! But even worse for evil premium Spotify is that the default cute client is little more than what feels like an electron app and especially always trying to push their own podcasts and all that kind of stuff kick them off the podcast i don't like them anymore <laughs> but um this one pistol p-s-s-t it's pistol right <laughs> is, is the best kind of minimal unofficial client i've i've used it basically gets out your way you can create playlists and access your playlists and just play your music that way on it's really really nice um really low level, low resource, and it doesn't keep changing without you wanting it to. Um, so you have to have a premium account. But apart from that, it's perfect. Oh, so you endorse Joe Rogan and his uh, anti-vax views. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you might enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, Graham, you really should be uh, resigning in protest and, and going with, uh, you know, a more ethical company like Amazon Music, for example. <laughs> Seven digital all the way, baby. It's the only one I can buy tracks on over here. It's an absolute disgrace because Amazon doesn't work. I've tried to buy from Amazon.de because in the EU didn't work. I tried Amazon.co.uk. It said I didn't live in the UK, which is obviously true. So it's like, so clearly Amazon, I can't buy music from either. It's like, and Google shut down. It's like, fuck you guys. It's not about buying music these days. It's about streaming it. And if you just don't mind terrible, terrible quality, just get it off YouTube like I do. Never. Get the cool video as well. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Go to kolide.com slash late night Linux to sign up today. Collide sends employees important, timely and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. Instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Collide helps deal with some of the many issues that are not solved by locking down devices, like instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices, free for 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash late night Linux. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. Let's do some feedback then. First one is from Agron. 
May I kindly ask you to inform the audience about the DebConf event happening in Kosovo in July this year. It is being organized by FlossK, an open source advocacy group. We invite all Linux and open source enthusiasts to join us now after the COVID restrictions have eased up in person to enjoy the beauty of Kosovo's nature and participate in this major event. So please join us in Kosovo in the month of July and let's share ideas. And there's a link that we can put in the show notes. So uh, yes, you may ask, and we have done that, I think, Agron. We got quite a lot of emails about work-supplied hardware. The first one was from Gabe. As Will said, the model of company-owned laptops is becoming old-fashioned. I agree. I believe there is potentially a serious shift coming in the SMB space around this topic. I've been a remote employee for over 10 years and was in the tiny minority of guys who had a company laptop full-time at home until recently. When you have a minority of staff working remotely, the logistics of asset management, accessibility to resources and compliance are a small pain. But when tens, hundreds or thousands of employees are at home, the corp IT staff is quickly decimated. The pandemic pushed this into overdrive. The logistics of buying, imaging and shipping laptops, configuring OAVPN, managing compliance policies, just scratching the surface, all of this is a fucking nightmare at scale. Centralised virtual desktop is a decent solution. As the majority of enterprises is using Windows, the solution many are using or testing out is Azure Virtual Desktop or AVD. VMware has a similar solution. The employee has their own personal local machine and utilises 2FA to authenticate to remote company resources within the container of the AVD session. The concept, of course, isn't new, but it's vastly improved since the early days of Citrix. Also, there are many cross-platform options available to access resources within, even within browsers. The major gap here is mobile. Never, ever, 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 ever register your personal device with an organization's MDM. I don't care what Phelim says, but this is surely a discussion for another time. So I know there are quite a lot of remote desktop solutions, but are they really good enough these days? I think they get close. One of my finds was going to be X2Go, which is really close and can feel... I think most people wouldn't be affected by any kind of delay or latency. But of course, most of us use terminals, which kind of obviates the need to worry about desktops because it's almost just as good. Um, so, yeah, I think it probably is good enough to use. Yeah, I think that when printing worked, like local printers connected to effectively thin clients, when that problem was solved, a whole new area was enabled for people to work from home and still be able to get all this weird stuff that they need to do done. So yeah, I think it is good enough. I've also used FreeNX on Linux, which is like a fork of an old product called NX, which I think is now commercial. But that handled all of the sound and microphone input and webcam stuff as well, which was really good. And so I'm sure that on Windows is a much better experience as well. And there was some sort of remote USB solution as well. So you could even plug in a, a thumb drive into a thin client and it would be mounted on the remote desktop. I can't remember what that was called, but um, even that works. So it's, it's yeah, it's pretty complete. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've, I've heard of clients that have had problems where they've had to have like local hardware devices that they've had to talk to remotely and they've had like a machine off-site and they've had various like improvements in sort of the remote desktop protocol it's not rdp it's something else 
it's even like doing forwarding of debug of USB based devices and things like that all across the network. It, there's a lot of improvement there. I think these days, I, it'd be just nice to see a bit more open protocol wise. Yeah, and I guess it's all there if you look at KVM and the way that handles like external devices. In theory, that's all going over like a local network connection, and there's and and it'll work over a distance network connection. I've also heard of like people transporting OpenGL commands over the network so that they've got local accelerated OpenGL of a remote session. Matt also wrote to us and explained that running Linux in the enterprise runs up against a lot of compliance and security issues as well. I know it can be quite difficult to get like certification, but there's an awful lot of distros that are actually certified against this stuff. And a lot of things like ISO will require you to sign off on things as well. So a lot of it is down to what you as a company will accept. And, you know, there's there's guides where you can follow from Ubuntu the like, where you can actually get your machine to checkbox off against things. And the problem with a lot of these things I find is the fact that it is really a checkbook exercise. I'm not saying that there's not a good core of making sure hosts are secure, etc. But a lot of it is, it must have this. And it's like, well, that doesn't apply. So why should it have that? They can be quite inflexible, I find, but there are ways in those procedures to get an, a register and to write off what you are ex- prepared to accept yourself. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Well, we talked about the Ubuntu 22.04 release and the canonical press release about that was all about HIPAA and other compliance stuff. So they're clearly making an effort to try and tick the right boxes here. Yeah. And I mean, I've I've got clients who've gone through ISO and have actually passed and with loads of Linux servers. I mean, they weren't desktops just purely by the fact of what they were doing with it. But for various clients who've had multiple cases where they've had to do antivirus and he was raising the case that, you know, antivirus doesn't exist. Well, there's at least two, three vendors off the top of my head that I've used already uh, that do have AV on Linux and, you know, various things like there's uh, Rapid7 or... There's another one from Black Carbon, which is from, oh, I can't remember who they are, but essentially they're kind of, you know, what changes take place in a box as they happen, and then they report them back up to the compliance machine in the center. I think there's an awful lot more stuff there that's available. And yes, it doesn't integrate maybe into AD directly for management, but there's a lot of tools out there like SaltStack, Ansible, Puppet, all these things are there. They may not have quite as polishing interface but that being said i have never enjoyed doing anything to do with active directory or any packaging on windows either so i don't think there's anything perfect out there yeah but then you've got the likes of google offering to just manage all of that for you with chrome os yeah but i don't think that's a real fair comparison because you can do so much more on a linux desktop than you can on a chromebook because a chromebook is essentially a browser uh not anymore not anymore you can do an awful lot on a chromebook you can even have proper Linux VMs and stuff these days. Yeah, but that's tie-in from one vendor, though. That That's a scary place to be as well. And that's a vendor with known history of shutting things down. Would you base your enterprise on that? I'm not so sure I would. Well, we also had someone who works at IBM as a software engineer. I think we'd probably better keep them anonymous just in case. And uh, they say they're lucky enough that despite all the compliance rules, they're still able to run either RHEL or Fedora on work machines. Of course, with IBM now owning Red Hat, you'd think they'd let us use their software, but it's not as obvious as one could think, corporations, right? Either way, I want to make the point that the same way as a company supports, say, Windows 11, they can support Fedora or Ubuntu. 
as opposed to just Linux, if the problem is supporting too many alternatives. And I think, yeah, exactly what we've been talking about. You look at what Ubuntu's doing with the compliance stuff, and Red Hat's been doing that probably for even longer, and SUSE as well. And yeah, you're not just picking some random distro off distro watch or whatever. If you go for one that's got a proper company behind it, then you can go through the, the box ticking exercises with them. This is the same IBM that in 2003 had the um, IBM Linux commercial work. Linux is a boy, he's a child, he's learning. I had to put up with that shite from the various <laughs> companies that I worked at. It's like, oh, you're like the boy. You're also extremely white. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> but this anonymous person also went on to talk about Cute Browser and said Cute Browser now has implemented Adblock, which is the same implementation as Brave. So it's not only an allow slash deny list anymore. I've been using Cute Browser for years now. And yes, sometimes, though very rarely, it won't work but mostly because some websites block it based on metadata and not because it can't handle the website. I've tried all Vim-like add-ons in Firefox, and quite frankly, they all kind of suck in one way or another. Plus, Graham said, Cute Browser is super minimalistic. All is in config files plus scripts. It's just good. I only wish it was based on the Firefox engine, but we have Mozilla to thank for that. It's not exactly easy to use unless you want to fork the entire browser. Yeah, this is a really good point. I had missed the fact that Adblock had been seriously upgraded on Browser. I think mainly because I use Pihole, um, and it doesn't block uh, YouTube ads, which is what I'm really interested in, um, which is why I think I said I used MPV forked by YT download or something through a script, which is uh, what they mention. But yeah, it's a great browser if you've not tried it yet. Well, you've almost tempted me to use this Cube Browser, and we'll see how long I keep using Firefox for. Mozilla, we could just bash every episode, and we've tried to not do it for a while, even though they're just spending money on ridiculous, ridiculous shit. So uh, I'm convinced. It's not predictions time just yet. In fact, no, it's it's ages till we do more predictions, but I wish I'd predicted that someone would uh, fork it properly, like a big organization would come along and be a phoenix from the fucking burning corpse that is the current Mozilla. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late-night-linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late-night-linux. On to a bit of admin, then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to latenightlinux.com slash support for more details there. And for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And you'll get occasional early releases of some of the shows. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. And feel free to send in free consulting-style questions. So on two and a half admins, we have people write in with specific questions for Jim and Alan, 
about being a sysadmin and networking and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, if you want advice about something, then feel free to uh, send that in. Maybe it's about synths and Graham can help you. Oh, please do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll make sure we include one synth question per half an episode. (laughs) No, sorry, I mean half a year. That's probably more appropriate. Oh, my next find is going to be a synth-related one. Oh, Christ, what have you done? (laughs) (laughs) All right, Adam got in touch to call out you, Will, because you talked about signing PDFs in... uh, a bit of a non-proper way. Mm. So Adam says, I'm a freelancer and I live in Spain and I have to digitally sign every invoice I issue to any public or state company or education institution, including schools and universities, using a cryptographic digital signature. The Spanish government, via the official mint, issues all Spanish residents with this encrypted digital signature that is then used for accessing every public service imaginable, including health services, social security, residency, taxes, pensions, schools, and the European COVID vaccination certificate. This means that I have to have the cryptographic signature on my computer and use it to sign all official websites and sign all official documents. Firefox handles it really well these days. At the beginning, we had to use exclusively Internet Explorer. Did Internet Explorer exist before COVID? Uh, <laughs> LibreOffice 7.2.6.2 allows me to cryptographically sign any digital document. However, there is always this warning, unable to verify the signature. So I think there's still work to do there. Ocular is the perfect solution for me. <laughs> you can easily add your cryptographic signature to any PDF as well as any graphic signature you like. The results are opens perfectly on Windows and macOS devices, etc., showing the digital signature as verified just as you would expect. It used to be the case that I had to rely on Microsoft Internet Explorer and Adobe Acrobat for all this, so needed a Windows VM on hand. No more GNU Linux for the win. Well, it seems to me, Adam, that uh, you should try living in a proper country that did a Brexit, and then you won't have all this uh, <laughs> European bureaucracy requiring digital signatures. No, here, you just take a photograph of your signature, stick it in a document, and everyone's <laughs> like, yeah, all right, that'll do. When you sign up to get your dole because your company went out of business because it couldn't trade with anybody. Yeah, exactly. Well, in this country, we can't write, so our signatures is just like a handprint. <laughs> just an X. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> But we did get some pushback about this in the Telegram uh, group as well. There were quite a few passionate people about this saying, no, you've got to properly digitally sign stuff. And uh, I don't know, maybe in proper countries that have bureaucracy and stuff, I don't know. Whereas here, it's just, people just don't give a fuck here. They're just like, yeah, whatever, it'll do. Mm. Evangelos wrote in to say, one thing that I dislike are the window managers in Linux. I used to be very fond of XFCE for its simplicity, but could never understand the complexity of KDE or the changes in GNOME. With GNOME, I feel that half of my screen is lost due to their choices and switching from one app to another using hot corners and all this usability, making my desktop experience to be miserable. Back in the day, I switched from XFCE to Fluxbox and saw my computer performance be extraordinary and the most efficient state. Speed, clear theme, tiling features, and some cool things that Fluxbox does to keep it simple and productive. Of course, I understand that window managers are like a personal choice, and everybody should choose whatever they like to work with. The same thing with distros. It's your opinion, and you should do whatever you like. 
That said, Fluxbox is not actively maintained at the moment, and some could say it's perfect just as it is, but no Wayland support <laughs> in the future. With all these moving changes from Xorg to Wayland, and don't get me wrong, I do like moving forward with new tools, apps, and environments, but I really miss the simplicity of a window manager that stays away from your user experience, the apps, and your work. I ran Fluxbox and we're wasting all its time in that idle process. God, it was a nightmare. <laughs> well, look, this is why I use XFCE, oh, because it's the perfect God's balance. God's sake! <laughs> It's the perfect balance. It isn't. It is. It's rubbish. Fluxbox is just too light for me and not actively maintained as well. But, you know, there, there are, you know, there's things like Sway, which are very much modern and tiling and all that. And yes, Gnome is uh, just not for me. And Plasma is too complicated. It isn't complicated. Would you just stop with these <laughs> lies? <laughs> but XFCE is just the perfect balance. Isn't it, Will? No, he's on to Mate now, so just uh, he, he's not hes not your friend anymore. Well, you might be by the time this comes out. There are bits of XFCE where I wish it was a little bit more, uh, I don't know, a little, that it was a little bit more modern and had access to a few new features. But generally speaking, XFCE does everything I need and nothing that I don't need. I think maybe Mate would offer a little bit more sugar on top, but... I, I'm going to have to try it and, and see. However, I've got XFCE working just the way I like it now, so I'm kind of low to, to switch away from it. But the idea of just using a window manager and not a proper desktop environment, I mean, a window manager is a component of a desktop environment, surely. Yes, Linux can be totally modular if you want it to be, but why would you want to just build your own thing when there's people who are far better at it than you doing a great job out there thing i don't understand about people who want such a, a cut down experience is the fact and like i might be wrong about this and they should probably explain to me why if my machine moves as quick as i think it's doing a good job and if it can do all the excess stuff on top like allowing me to connect to various servers like using kyo slaves whatever i'm using on kde that can get me there quick or without having to use a different app, Dolphin just knows how to get to different servers, FTP, Samba, SSH, whatever. That provides me with so much more complexity and value that I'm happy for that to be there. And I've never sat in my machine and gone, geez, I wish Dolphin would load up quicker because when I type in Dolphin or DOL and hit enter in KRunner, it's there. And so it's doing exactly what I want it to do. It can't move much quicker than what I type. So I would genuinely love to know why, you know, okay, it might run in three megs of memory, but I've got 64 gigs of memory, uh, like, and I run multiple VMs for work. What what are you doing all that extra space? Like, because KDE is not using up that much on its own itself. So I, I don't know. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when who knows what we'll be talking about. Probably something to do with Linux. Who knows? But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.